0: Section 18 of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section 18 Up the Thames. The upper portion of Greenwich, where my last article left me loitering, is a cheerful, comely, old-fashioned town. The peculiarities of which, if there be any, have passed out of my remembrance. As you descend towards the Thames, the streets get meaner, and the shabby and sunken houses, elbowing one another for frontage, bear the signboards of beer shops and eating rooms, with the special promises of white bait and other delicacies in the fishing line. You observe also a frequent announcement of the gardens in the rear although estimating the capacity of the premises by their external compass, the entire sylvan charm and shadowy seclusion of such blissful resorts must be limited within a small backyard. These places of cheap sustenance and recreation depend for support upon the innumerable pleasure-parties who come from London Bridge by steamer at a fare of a few pence and who get as enjoyable a meal for a shilling a head as the ship hotel would afford a gentleman for a guinea the steamers which are constantly smoking their pipes up and down the thames offer much the most agreeable mode of getting to london at least it might be exceedingly agreeable except for the myriad floating particles of soot from the stovepipe and the heavy heat of midsummer sunshine on the unsheltered deck or the chill, misty air-draft of a cloudy day, and the spiteful little showers of rain that may spatter down upon you at any moment, whatever the promise of the sky, besides which there is some slight inconvenience from the inexhaustible throng of passengers who scarcely allow you standing-room, nor so much as a breath of unappropriated air, and never a chance to sit down. If these difficulties, added to the possibility of getting your pocket picked, weigh little with you, the panorama along the shores of the memorable river, and the incidents and shows of passing life upon its bosom, render the trip far preferable to the brief yet tiresome shoot along the railway track. On one such voyage a regatta of wherries raced past us, and at once involved every soul on board our steamer in the tremendous excitement of the struggle the spectacle was but a moment within our view and presented nothing more than a few light skiffs in each of which sat a single rower bare-armed and with little apparel save a shirt and drawers pale anxious with every muscle on the stretch, and plying his oars in such a fashion that the boat skimmed along with the aerial celerity of a swallow. I wondered at myself for so immediately catching an interest in the affair, which seemed to contain no very exalted rivalship of manhood, but, whatever the kind of battle or the prize of victory, it stirs one's sympathy immensely and is even awful to behold the rare sight of a man thoroughly in earnest doing his best putting forth all there is in him and staking his very soul as these rowers appeared willing to do on the issue of the contest it was the seventy-fourth annual regatta of the free watermen of greenwich and announced itself as under the patronage of the lord mayor and other distinguished individuals At whose expense, I suppose, a prize boat was offered to the conqueror, and some small amounts of money to the inferior competitors. The aspect of London along the Thames, below Bridge, as it is called, is by no means so impressive as it ought to be, considering what peculiar advantages are offered for the display of grand and stately architecture by the passage of a river through the midst of a great city. It seems, indeed, as if the heart of London has been cleft open for the mere purpose of showing how rotten and drearily mean it had become. The shore is lined with the shabbiest, blackest, and ugliest buildings that can be imagined, decayed warehouses with blind windows, and wharves that look ruinous, insomuch that, had I known nothing more of the world's metropolis, I might have fancied that it had already experienced the downfall which I have heard commercial and financial profits predict for it within the century. And the muddy tide of the Thames, reflecting nothing, and hiding a million of unclean secrets within its breast, a sort of guilty conscience, as it were, unwholesome with the rivulets of sin that constantly flow into it, is just the dismal stream to glide by such a city. The surface, to be sure, displays no lack of activity, being fretted by the passage of a hundred steamers and covered with a good deal of shipping, but mostly of a clumsier build than I had been accustomed to see in the mercy, a fact which I complacently attributed to the smaller number of American clippers in the Thames, and the less prevalent influence of American example, in refining away the broad-bottomed capacity of the old Dutch or English models. About midway between Greenwich and London Bridge, at a rude landing-place on the left bank of the river, the steamer rings its bell and makes a momentary pause in front of a large circular structure, where it may be worth our while to scramble ashore. It indicates the locality of one of those prodigious practical blunders that would supply John Bull with a topic of inexhaustible ridicule if his cousin Jonathan had committed them, but of which he himself perpetrates ten to our one in the mere wantonness of wealth that lacks better employment. The circular building covers the entrance to the Thames Tunnel, and is surmounted by a dome of glass, so as to throw daylight down into the great depth at which the passage of the river commences. Descending a wearisome succession of staircases, we at last find ourselves, still in the broad noon, standing before a closed door, on opening which we behold the vista of an arched corridor that extends into everlasting midnight." In these days, when glass has been applied to so many new purposes, it is a pity that the architect had not thought of arching portions of his abortive tunnel with immense blocks of the lucid substance, over which the dusky Thames would have flowed like a cloud, making the sub-fluvial avenue only a little gloomier than a street of Upper London. At present it is illuminated at regular intervals by jets of gas— not very brilliantly yet with lustre enough to show the damp plaster of the ceiling and walls and the massive stone pavement the crevices of which are oozy with moisture not from the incumbent river but from hidden springs in the earth's deeper heart there are two parallel corridors with a wall between for the separate accommodation of the double throng of foot passengers, equestrians, and vehicles of all kinds, which was expected to roll and reverberate continually through the tunnel. Only one of them has ever been opened, and its echoes are but feebly awakened by infrequent footfalls. Yet there seem to be people who spend their lives here and who probably blink like owls when, once or twice a year perhaps, they happen to climb into the sunshine. All along the corridor, which I believe to be a mile in extent, we see stalls or shops in little alcoves, kept principally by women. They were of a ripe age, I was glad to observe, and certainly robbed England of none of its very moderate supply of feminine loveliness by their deeper-than-tomb-like interment." As you approach, and they are so accustomed to the dusky gaslight that they read all your characteristics afar off, they assail you with hungry entreaties to buy some of their merchandise, holding forth views of the tunnel put up in cases of Derbyshire Spar, with a magnifying glass at one end to make the vista more effective. They offer you, besides, cheap jewelry, Sunny topazes and resplendent emeralds for sixpence, and diamonds as big as the Kohi Inur, at not much heavier cost, together with a multifarious trumpery which has died out of the upper world to reappear in this Tartarian bazaar. That you may fancy yourself still in the realms of the living, they urge you to partake of cakes, candy, ginger-beer, and such small refreshment, more suitable, however, for the shadowy appetite of ghosts than for the sturdy stomachs of Englishmen. The most capacious of the shops contains a dioramic exhibition of cities and scenes in the daylight world, with a dreary glimmer of gas among them all so that they serve well enough to represent the dim, unsatisfactory remembrances that dead people might be supposed to retain from their past lives, mixing them up with the ghastliness of their unsubstantial state. I dwell the more upon these trifles, and do my best to give them a mockery of importance, because, if these are nothing, then all this elaborate contrivance and mighty piece of work has been wrought in vain." the englishman has burrowed under the bed of his great river and set ships of two or three thousand tons a-rolling over his head only to provide new sights for a few old women to sell cakes and ginger-beer yet the conception was a grand one and though it has proved an absolute failure, swallowing an immensity of toil and money, with annual returns hardly sufficient to keep the pavement free from the ooze of subterranean springs, yet it needs, I presume, only an expenditure three or four, or, for aught I know, twenty times as large, to make the enterprise brilliantly successful. The descent is so great from the bank of the river to its surface, and the tunnel dips so profoundly under the river's bed, that the approaches on either side must commence a long way off, in order to render the entrance accessible to horsemen or vehicles, so that the larger part of the cost of the whole affair should have been expended on its margins. It has turned out a sublime piece of folly— and when the New Zealander of distant ages shall have moralized sufficiently among the ruins of London Bridge, he will bethink himself that somewhere thereabout was the marvelous tunnel, the very existence of which will seem to him as incredible as that of the hanging gardens of Babylon. But the Thames will long ago have broken through the massive arch, and choked up the corridors with mud and sand, and with the large stones of the structure itself, intermixed with skeletons of drowned people, the rusty ironwork of sunken vessels, and the great many such precious and curious things as a river always contrives to hide in its bosom. The entrance will have been obliterated, and its very site forgotten beyond the memory of twenty generations of men, and the whole neighborhood beheld a dangerous spot on account of the malaria insomuch that the traveller will make but a brief and careless inquisition for the traces of the old wonder and will stake his credit before the public in some pacific monthly of that day that the story of it is but a myth though enriched with the spiritual profundity which he will proceed to unfold yet it is impossible for a yankee at least to see so much magnificent ingenuity thrown away without trying to endow the unfortunate result with some kind of usefulness, though perhaps widely different from the purpose of its original conception. In former ages, the mile-long corridors, with their numerous alcoves, might have been utilized as a series of dungeons, the fittest of all possible receptacles for prisoners of state dethroned monarchs and fallen statesmen would not have needed to remonstrate against a domicile so spacious so deeply secluded from the world's scorn and so admirably in accordance with their thenceforward sunless fortunes an alcove here might have suited sir walter raleigh better than that darksome hiding-place communicating with the great chamber in the tower pacing from end to end of which he meditated upon his history of the world. His track would here have been straight and narrow, indeed, and would therefore have lacked somewhat of the freedom that his intellect demanded, and yet the length to which his footsteps might have travelled forth and retraced themselves would partly have harmonized his physical movement with the grand curves and planetary returns of his thought, through cycles of majestic periods having it in his mind to compose the world's history methinks he could have asked no better retirement than such a cloister as this insulated from all the seductions of mankind and womankind deep beneath their mysteries and motives down into the heart of things full of personal reminiscences in order to the comprehensive measurement and verification of historic records seeing into the secrets of human nature secrets that daylight never yet revealed to mortal but detecting their whole scope and purport with the infallible eyes of unbroken solitude and night and then the shades of the old mighty men might have risen from their still profounder abodes and joined him in the dim corridor treading beside him with an antique stateliness of mien telling him in melancholy tones, grand but always melancholy, of the greater ideas and purposes which their most renowned performances so imperfectly carried out, that, magnificent successes in the view of all posterity, they were but failures to those who planned them. As Raleigh was a navigator, Noah would have explained to him the peculiarities of construction that made the ark so seaworthy. As Raleigh was a statesman, Moses would have discussed with him the principles of laws and government. As Raleigh was a soldier, Caesar and Hannibal would have held debate in his presence with this martial student for their umpire. As Raleigh was a poet, David, or whatever most illustrious bard he might call up, would have touched his harp and made manifest all the true significance of the past by means of song and the subtle intelligences of music. Meanwhile I had forgotten that Sir Walter Raleigh's century knew nothing of gaslight, and that it would require a prodigious and wasteful expenditure of tallow-candles to illuminate the tunnel sufficiently to discern even a ghost. On this account, however, it would be all the more suitable place of confinement for a metaphysician to keep him from bewildering mankind with his shadowy speculations, and being shut off from the external converse, the dark corridor would help him to make rich discoveries in those cavernous regions and mysterious by-paths of the intellect which he had so long accustomed himself to explore. But how would every successive age rejoice in so secure a habitation for its reformers, and especially for each best and wisest man that happened to be then alive? He seeks to burn up our whole system of society, under pretense of purifying it from abuses. Away with him into the tunnel, and let him begin by setting the Thames on fire, if he is able. If not precisely these, Yet akin to these were some of the fantasies that haunted me as I passed under the river, for the place is suggestive of such idle and irresponsible stuff by its own abortive character, its lack of whereabout on upper earth, or any solid foundation of realities. Could I have looked forward a few years? I might have regretted that American enterprise had not provided a similar tunnel under the Hudson or the Potomac, For the convenience of our national government in times hardly yet gone by it would be delightful to clap up all the enemies of our peace and union in the dark together and there let them abide listening to the monotonous roll of the river above their heads or perhaps in a state of miraculously suspended animation until be it after months years or centuries when the turmoil shall be all over The wrong washed away in blood since that must needs be the cleansing fluid and the right firmly rooted in the soil which that blood will have enriched they might crawl forth again and catch a single glimpse at their redeemed country and feel it to be a better land than they deserve and die I was not sorry when the daylight reached me after a much briefer abode in the nether regions than, I fear, would await the troublesome personages just hinted at. Emerging on the Surrey side of the Thames, I found myself in Rotherhithe, a neighborhood not unfamiliar to the readers of old books of maritime adventure. There being a ferry hard by the mouth of the tunnel, I recrossed the river in the primitive fashion of an open boat which the conflict of wind and tide, together with the swash and swell of the passing steamers, tossed high and low rather tumultuously. This inquietude of our frail skiff, which, indeed, bobbed up and down like a cork, so much alarmed an old lady, the only other passenger, that the boatman essayed to comfort her. "'Never fear, mother,' grumbled one of them. "'We'll make the river as smooth as we can for you.' "'We'll get a plane and plane down the waves!' This joke may not read very brilliantly, but I make bold to record it as the only specimen that reached my ears of the old rough-water wit for which the Thames used to be so celebrated. Passing directly along the line of the sunken tunnel, we landed in Wapping, which I should have presupposed to be the most tarry and pitchy spot on earth, swarming with old salts and full of warm, bustling, coarse, homely, and cheerful life. Nevertheless, it turned out to be a cold and torpid neighborhood, mean, shabby, and unpicturesque, both as to its buildings and inhabitants, the latter comprising, so far as was visible to me, not a single unmistakable sailor though plenty of land-sharks who get a half-dishonest livelihood by business connected with the sea. Ale and spirit vaults, as petty drinking establishments are styled in England, pretending to contain vast cellars full of liquor within the compass of ten feet square above ground, were particularly abundant, together with apples, oranges, and oysters, the stalls of fishmongers and butchers, and slop shops, where blue jackets and duck trousers swung and capered before the doors. Everything was on the poorest scale, and the place bore an aspect of unredeemable decay. From this remote point of London, I strolled leisurely towards the heart of the city, while the streets, at first but thinly occupied by man or vehicle, got more and more thronged with foot-passengers, carts, drays, cabs, and the all-pervading and all-accommodating omnibus. But I lack courage, and feel that I should lack perseverance, as the gentlest reader would lack patience, to undertake a descriptive stroll through London streets, more especially as there would be a volume ready for the printer before we could reach a midway resting-place at Charing Cross. It will be the easier course to step aboard another passing steamer, and continue our trip up the Thames. The next notable group of objects is an assemblage of ancient walls, battlements, and turrets, out of the midst of which rises prominently one great square tower, of a grayish line bordered with white stone, and having a small turret at each corner of the roof. This central structure is the white tower, and the whole circuit of ramparts and enclosed edifices constitutes what is known in English history, and still more widely and impressively in English poetry, as the tower. A crowd of river craft are generally moored in front of it, but, if we look sharply at the right moment under the base of the rampart, we may catch a glimpse of an arched water-entrance, half-submerged, past which the Thames glides as indifferently as if it were the mouth of a city kennel. Nevertheless it is the Traitors' Gate, a dreary kind of triumphal passageway, now supposed to be shut up and barred for ever, through which a multitude of noble and illustrious personages have entered the tower and found it a brief resting-place on their way to heaven. Passing it many times... I never observed that anybody glanced at this shadowy and ominous trap-door save myself. It is well that America exists, if it were only that her vagrant children may be impressed and affected by the historical monuments of England, in a degree of which the native inhabitants are evidently incapable. These matters are too familiar, too real— and too hopelessly built in amongst and mixed up with the common objects and affairs of life to be easily susceptible of imaginative colouring in their minds, and even their poets and romancers feel it a toil, and almost a delusion, to extract poetic material out of what seems embodied poetry itself to an American. An Englishman cares nothing about the tower— which to us is a haunted castle in dreamland. That honest and excellent gentleman, the late Mr. G. P. R. James, whose mechanical ability, one might have supposed, would nourish itself by devouring every old stone of such a structure, once assured me that he had never in his life set eyes upon the tower, though for years an historic novelist in London. Not to spend a whole summer's day upon the voyage, we will suppose ourselves to have reached London Bridge, and thence to have taken another steamer for a farther passage up the river. But here the memorable objects succeed each other so rapidly that I can spare but a single sentence even for the great dome, though I deem it more picturesque in that dusky atmosphere than St. Peter's in its clear blue sky. I must mention, however, since everything connected with royalty is especially interesting to my dear countrymen, that I once saw a large and beautiful barge, splendidly gilded and ornamented, and overspread with a rich covering, lying at the pier nearest to St. Paul's Cathedral. It had the royal banner of Great Britain displayed, besides being decorated with a number of other flags, and many footmen who are universally the grandest and gaudiest objects to be seen in England at this day, and these were regal ones, in a bright scarlet livery, bedizened with gold lace and white silk stockings, were in attendance. I know not what festive or ceremonial occasion may have drawn out this pageant—after all, it might have been merely a city spectacle appertaining to the Lord Mayor—but The sight had its value in bringing vividly before me the grand old times, when the sovereign and nobles were accustomed to use the Thames as the high street of the metropolis, and join in pompous processions upon it, whereas the desuetude of such customs, nowadays, has caused the whole show of river life to consist in a multitude of smoke-begrimed steamers. An analogous change has taken place in the streets, where cabs and the omnibus have crowded out a rich variety of vehicles, and thus life gets more monotonous in hue, from age to age, and appears to seize every opportunity to strip off a bit of its gold lace among the wealthier classes, and to make itself decent in the lower ones. Yonder is white friars, the old rowdy Alsatia, now wearing as decorous a face as any other portion of London, and, adjoining it, the avenues and brick squares of the temple, with that historic garden close upon the riverside, and still rich in shrubbery and flowers, where the partisans of York and Lancaster plucked the fatal roses, and scattered their pale and bloody petals over so many English battlefields. Hard by we see the long white front or rear of Somerset House, and farther on rise the two new houses of Parliament, with a huge unfinished tower already hiding its imperfect summit in the smoky canopy, the whole vast and cumbrous edifice, a specimen of the best that modern architecture can effect, elaborately imitating the masterpieces of those simple ages when men, builded better than they knew, close by it we have a glimpse of the roof and upper towers of the holy abbey while that grey ancestral pile on the opposite side of the river is lambeth palace a venerable group of halls and turrets chiefly built of brick but with at least one large tower of stone in our course We have passed beneath half a dozen bridges, and, emerging out of the black heart of London, shall soon reach a cleanly suburb where old Father Thames, if I remember, begins to put on an aspect of unpolluted innocence. And now we look back upon the mass of innumerable roofs, out of which rise steeples, towers, columns, and the great crowning dome look back in short upon that mystery of the world's proudest city amid which a man so longs and loves to be not perhaps because it contains much that is positively admirable and enjoyable but because at all events the world has nothing better the cream of external life is there and whatever merely intellectual or material good we fail to find perfect in london we may as well content ourselves to seek that unattainable thing no farther on this earth. The steamer terminates its trip at Chelsea, an old town endowed with a prodigious number of pot-houses and some famous gardens called the Cremorne for public amusement. The most noticeable thing, however, is Chelsea Hospital, which, like that of Greenwich, was founded, I believe, by Charles the Second whose bronze statue, in the guise of an old Roman, stands in the centre of the quadrangle, and appropriated as a home for aged and infirm soldiers of the British army. The edifices are of three stories with windows in the high roofs, and are built of dark, sombre brick with stone edgings and facings. The effect is by no means that of grandeur, which is somewhat disagreeably an attribute of Greenwich Hospital, but a quiet and venerable neatness. At each extremity of the street-front there is a spacious and hospitably open gateway, lounging about which I saw some gray veterans in long scarlet coats of an antique fashion, and the cocked hats of a century ago, or, occasionally, a modern foraging cap. Almost all of them moved with a rheumatic gait, two or three stumped on wooden legs, and here and there an arm was missing. Inquiring of one of these fragmentary heroes whether a stranger could be admitted to see the establishment, he replied most cordially, "'Oh, yes, sir, anywhere. Walk in and go where you please. Upstairs or anywhere.' So I entered, and passing along the inner side of the quadrangle, came to the door of the chapel which forms a part of the contiguity of edifices next the street here another pensioner an old warrior of exceedingly peaceable and christian demeanour touched his three-cornered hat and asked if i wished to see the interior to which i assenting he unlocked the door and we went in the chapel consists of a great hall with a vaulted roof and over the altar is a large painting and fresco, the subject of which I did not trouble myself to make out. More appropriate adornments of the place, dedicated as well to martial reminiscences as religious worship, are the long ranges of dusty and tattered banners that hang from their staves all around the ceiling of the chapel. They are trophies of battles fought and won in every quarter of the world, comprising the captured flags of all the nations with whom the british lion has waged war since james the second's time french dutch east indian prussian russian chinese and american collected together in this consecrated spot not to symbolize that there shall be no more discord upon earth but drooping over the isle in sullen though peaceable humiliation Yes, I said American among the rest, for the good old pensioner mistook me for an Englishman, and failed not to point out, and, methought, with an especial emphasis of triumph, some flags that had been taken at Bladensburg and Washington. I fancied, indeed, that they hung a little higher and drooped a little lower than any of their companions in disgrace. It is a comfort, however, that their proud devices are already indistinguishable, or nearly so, owing to dust and tatters, and the kind offices of the moths, that they will soon rot from the banner staves and be swept out in unrecognized fragments from the chapel door. End of section 18